looking for the King of Podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Mmm, I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch is got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Mm -mm Mmm-mm-mm. Don't mess with me, I'm one crazy mofo. Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any other films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Hello, folks. This is uh, Jeff Mangle, the former strength and conditioning coach of, of the New York Yankees. Go ahead and set some time aside and enjoy your visit. Listen to the Crazy Train Radio. Hey, folks. It's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. 
boy do we have a good one for you today. So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this next guest went from being a small town kid out of Washington, Iowa, if I read that correctly, right? to ha- having a front row seat to one of the most storied teams, I should say, with a storied history, being the New York Yankees, but also had a little stint there with the New York Mets as well as the strength and conditioning coach for parts of three decades and was truly embedded into the building of a dynasty during his second stint with the Yankees in the 90s and the 2000s. He has a new book called Power in Pinstripes, which I have in hand. This guest, Jeff Mangold. How are you doing this afternoon? Jonathan, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Great to hear you're looking well. Before we get started, we are taping this on December 20th. So I want to say to you, before we get into it, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, because we're heading into that next couple of weeks here. You got that right, Jonathan, especially tomorrow being what the winter solstice with all these short days that you find a way to get me in to speak to you with your Titan schedule. Thank you. You got it. I appreciate it. So as we said in the introduction, I'm curious to know, and I know it probably sounds cliche and everything else like that, but small kid from Washington, Iowa, did you ever think you would end up in the direction you ended up with? Not at all. I, I thought that my dream, I, I would say, when I was a young kid, would probably be the playing for the St. Louis Cardinals on the baseball field because I was a big fan of Gibson and Brock and Kurt Flood and Bill White and all those guys. Or to wear a Chicago Bear uniform to, to, uh, to play for the Bears. Because those are my two big sports team uh, idols, you might say, back then. But I'm not, not even an inclination of ever walking the walking the area of, of Yankee Stadium and, and probably every stadium in the Major League Baseball. N- never crossed my mind. Well, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the St. Louis Cardinals there and the error you're talking about. Is it safe to assume that you listen to the famous Jack Buck on the radio growing up? You got, got that right. Jack Buck, Harry Carey, and Mike Shannon. And every night, especially uh, one of the perfect evenings would be me going to bed about 9, 30, 10 o'clock out there in Central Daylight Time in Iowa, listening to a, a West Coast game of the Cardinals where they'd be playing the Dodgers, they'd be playing the San Francisco Giants, either go you know, with Koufax or Drysdale pitching against Steve Carlton or Gibson or somebody, or with the Giants with Juan Marichal and Jim Ray Hart and McCovey, Mays, all those guys. And you list a bunch of names there that are historical to the game, Jeff. And I know it may or may not be difficult to do, but is there a guy growing up that you could pinpoint that you he was my favorite player. Bob Gibson. Did you Not have any you. interaction with him? Yes, believe it or not. 
I mean, he was, uh, he's from Omaha, Nebraska, and he played at Creighton University, he played basketball too. But he and my, another hero, Gail Sayers, they're both from Omaha. How about that? But as you, the question you just asked, here I am idolizing Gibson. And here it is when I was a nine, 10 year old boy, 11 year old kid on the radio to end up being when I'm early forties or so, 45 years old with the Yankees and having Joe Torre be the manager. And Joe Torre and Gibson are very good friends from the Cardinal days. So Gibson would come around the clubhouse and be around every once in a while. And just to, just to meet Gibson, to meet him personally was, was great. And you know, what's funny. And this kind of a, I never met Bob Gibson, but I'm a member of the hall of fame, you know, and I try to go up and was doing it annually before COVID. But I got talking during the hall of fame weekend with a, I'm sure you know this gentleman, Goose Gossage. Yeah. And I always, I was, I am of the age that I was a little kid at the tail end of Goose's career. But knowing Goose and knowing the history of the game, he was always one of those badass guys. He had that intensity and just everything else, like a Bob Gibson, I would say. But I said, man, yeah, I've heard the stories about you. And, you know, we're having this conversation. He goes, I had nothing on Bob Gibson. So just tells you something when he hit that Bob had the respect of his peers and even the generations after him. Yeah, that's great. To, that's great to hear because yeah, it wasn't you could tell it was in, it was it was there's no facade about it. There's no fakeness about it. It was that was him 24 <laughs> seven. Was, yeah. was it a show? It was players. Players knees were knocking when, when they get in and hit against him. It's just yeah. to hear the hear the stories from the major league players years after him, and about about Gibson. You know, they just, he was at another level. Yeah, exactly. And that's what Goose was saying. He goes, "I may have been intense. I had nothing on Bob." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So as we dive into the book and stuff, and I know there's stuff we can talk about, but obviously our friends at Triumph have these books available and Barnes and Noble and stuff, power and pinstripes. But I'm curious now, as a kid from Iowa, what made you go into wanting to be a strength and conditioning coach? Cause I know you did some time in college coaching as well. I, cause I, what veered me that way was that, that I was, I went to, to college and seen at St. Ambrose university at Davenport, Iowa. And I've, I got a Bachelor of Arts degree in physical education. And during my senior year, when you, when you do your practicums, where you go out into the high schools and, and teach and, and coach a little bit, I quickly found out that this isn't cut out for me. I didn't have the patience with these young kids. It's <laughs> <laughs> just the lack of discipline and just the free reign that they had. I, I couldn't handle it. So I realized, uh-uh. <laughs> It's not for me. So I thought maybe I wanted to get into sporting goods sales just to stay related in, in the sports industry. And that's what that's what located me into Lincoln, Nebraska, because Jonathan, I had a sister that lived in Lincoln, Nebraska. She invited me out there to stay with them, uh, her and her husband and family. 
because they said they they knew a a owner of a sporting goods store and they they could get me a job there, come on in and get to know some product lines and so forth and uh, get a little experience under my belt. But I quickly, again, found out I, I didn't enjoy it at all. But during that time period, after I would get done working at the sporting goods store in downtown Lincoln, I would go across to the YMCA about a block and a half away and work out. And it ends up being that a a professor at the University of Nebraska loaded, located there in Lincoln would notice how hard I worked and how aggressive I was. And he said, listen, I have a friend of mine who's the head strength and conditioning coach at the University of Nebraska. His name's Boyd Epley. He says, maybe I could get a meeting set up. Did you go in and talk to Boyd? Maybe you could, uh, you could assist in the program. So that's, that's what I did. I got very lucky. And um, started off there as this as a volunteer assistant at the University of Nebraska. I was a substitute teacher in the morning at schools, and also I worked construction. If I didn't get uh, called by the public schools to do any substitute teaching, so I was just trying to make ends meet. But knowing that sooner or later that I get my break of uh, once I worked my way up where I was the top assistant to be in case another college team or pro team would call Jonathan, that I would be the next guy up. The next team, the first team that called when I was on the launching pad, as they call it, was the University of Florida with the Gators. So I went down to the University of Florida and, and worked with the Gators for two and a half years. Now, obviously, like you said, you did some stuff with football, but also, as this book tells, stories with working within baseball and such. And I know I'm diving deep here and there are certain things we can and can't talk about, you know, just from HIPAA and different things like that. But for you and your philosophy, as far as being a strength and conditioning coach and stuff and training and all that fun stuff, what's the biggest differences in helping guys prepare for say football compared to baseball? Probably the biggest difference is the in football, you have six to seven days to prepare and to prep yourself and to have peak performance where there's a timed recuperation period in betweens. But with baseball, it's, it's five to six days a week where you're playing. So there needs to be just the intensity level of the actual training of the, of the strength and conditioning aspect is, is changed and has to, has to be to a point where an athlete can go out there and perform on the same day when they train. So there has to be a reduction in the intensity of the work and, and also the volume of the work. But one of those parameters have to be changed, either lessen the volume of work, the amount of work and maintain the intensity level which I like to do. I'd like to have short workouts, but make them intense to, in order to maintain or even to increase strength uh, versus having a, a very long and drawn out workout. These baseball players, they, it's too much during the season. Exactly. And it seems like, you know, obviously the game has changed and I'm talking baseball at least where Guys now have trainers and such in the off season and everything else like that. Are you tied in with these guys, different trainers and such to help keep consistency with 
what they're doing in the offseason for when they come into spring training and such? Yeah, the, a good word there is to have a, uh, a correlation or just to have a a connection of an exchange of what they're what the athlete is doing. And to touch on that, Jonathan, when I was with the with the Yankees and when the personal trainers started appearing on the scene, that there was no collaboration regard, be, between myself and the trainer, the the personal trainer or trainers, because it was just it was uh, it's something that wasn't looked positively upon, and it was a challenge because they were not accepted to be in the clubhouse. They were not ex, uh, accepted by Major League Baseball, and but with the Yankees, that it was accepted with the Yankees because they they let them be with the players. And it made a quite a quite a bit of a struggle to maintain leadership, motivation, and uh, validity to the program that I'm responsible for. So that was that was quite the quite the challenge. It's like the name of your show, Crazy Train. That it was a kind of a wild ride, Crazy Train there for a while with with me. Well, with that being said, how frustrating was that? Because Obviously, George Steinbrenner hired you to do a job, but yet there were certain aspects that you maybe not have a control because you want to do the job best of your ability, what the Steinbrenners were paying you for, but yet you had these other forces out of your control have an influence on the guys you were working with. Yeah, it was the, again, it was, I had no say in it. That's what was very frustrating is, can I deal with this? Because I think management was wanting to appease the players. And part of it is, all right, let the employees try to handle this. And, and I was the one that was having to handle it to go ahead and to work through other players that did not have personal trainers, which was the majority of them. And for them to maintain my respect and to be able to, to have to follow my leadership and not to get things too strained and too dis disarray. Well, with that being said, did George or anybody from upper management ever come to you and say, hey, what's going on here from things they would hear? No, that there was... Uh, even with all the all the chaos going on, that I mean, the only time that someone asked me of that was uh, when it came time for the the, the Clemens and McNamee trial, and where I had my my uh, oh, what's what's the term for it? Uh, that validation, but your uh, give your uh, when you're interviewed by them, uh, I can't think deposition. Yeah, deposition. I gave multiple depositions. That's when I was. That's when I was asked what was what was going on. At least from your perspective. Yes. And that story's been told, and that's obviously in my notes. Clements and McNamee and all that fun stuff. But I'll put it this way, because that story's obviously been told and whatnot. Do you think Roger should be a Hall of Famer? Based on what you know, 
That's a tough one. Great question. But he's you know, definitely the multiple multiple times over of of legitimacy to be in without if there if he did or did not utilize performance enhancing drugs. And he was and he was he was never found guilty. It was a mistrial. And so it's that's not to be a politician, but that's such a gray area. But he he certainly deserves to be in there, Hall of Fame. But with some of the question marks, he also he deserves to either be for the stall of having him get voted in. That's 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 the voter's choice. Like you said, there's a little bit of mud in that whole discussion. That's for sure. Very muddy. <laughs> yes, but. Since we're talking Hall of Famers, and I want to bring the book back up, Power and Pinstripes, the foreword was done by the first unanimous voted Hall of Famer, Mariano Rivera. So was that an easy choice to have Mariano write the foreword? Oh, definitely. He was the first person I thought of, uh, along with Dave Winfield. And the other person, if he was alive at the moment, but passed away probably three or four years ago would have been Don Baylor. All three of those gentlemen were good friends of mine, but also a man's man, every one of them, especially Baylor, God rest his soul. And because he learned under the great Frank Robinson, Baylor would always talk about Frank Robinson took Baylor underneath his wing, told him how to play the game, told him how to go into second base and take somebody out. Don't have to be dirty about it, but you go in there and you slide and you take somebody, take somebody out and Baylor would do that. And, uh, but, but Mariano just a special talent and God gifted individual and just such a, a unique player and just somebody that people would just stare at other other teams would get up on the top step of the dugout whenever most most of the time whenever he'd come into a game especially at Yankee Stadium they will start playing inner Sandman these players (laughs) get up and go oh my god here comes here comes Mo here comes Mariano he come trotting in from the dug from the bullpen in center field and just so effortless, effortlessly smooth. And I will put it this way too. I never interacted with the man. Hope to someday. Uh, because I actually recently read his book as well. But he, from all accounts that I have heard, not only was he a special player and everything else, like you said, but I've heard nothing but being a special man off the field as well. So, Yes. That he's he is a great listener, which many people aren't, and he realizes that he's he's been very blessed from uh, the, from the man upstairs who who hands out all the talent, and he's and he still is today. He hasn't changed. That he's, he does a, many charitable gifts and charitable actions behind the scenes, even to this day. Uh, building churches and giving to the poor and taking care of a, a lot of his Panamanian followers. 
And because of what you said there, there's a reason we were given two ears and one mouth. Very good point. Yeah. But going into working for both the Yankees and the Mets, was there a big difference that you noticed from your position in terms of operation procedure as far as day-to-day in the locker rooms? Let's see. Uh, let's see. Uh, it's, there, with the Yankees, it's, there, was a, there was a need to win, immediacy. And at the forefront, you could feel it, that it's expected. And with the Mets, it was, well, let's see if we can, let's see if we can win. Maybe let's see if we can win more games than we lose. Let's see if we can get above 500. And it, it was somewhat almost like the, the dollar used to be with Canada and the United States. It was just where the, the value of the dollar in Canada was, uh, you know, just not, not quite as uh, powerful. You know, it's just everything was just a little short. It, it seems like with the Mets, everything's just a little bit, a little bit scaled down, uh, whether it was projections or whether it was goals, uh, realities of trying to reach those goals. And uh, that's the, it's, and, and just the history and the, you could, you could feel the success with the Yankees and with the Mets, you just, you were trying to maybe set a standard, even though they had one world series year, I believe it was in 86. And, oh, they had one prior to that too. They're one of their first years. 69. 69. Thank you. You saved me again, Jonathan. Thank you. And, but that's the, that's the big difference. That's, that's the big difference. See, like the Yankees would, let's, let's go take care of business. We're going to, we're going to put you in a situation to win. At least we're going to go out there and try. That's what George Steinbrenner would do. Well, speaking of that, and I wasn't respecting or expecting a response, but last year during the pan- heavy part of the pandemic, I had the opportunity to interview Buck Showalter. And he was obviously just hired to work in the Mets. So I had sent him a text congratulating him on the job. Again, so busy, not expecting a response. But because you said about the difference with the dollar, per se, in your description there, do you think Buck can change the philosophy in what goes on within the Mets organization? I would say so. He's, he's proven wherever he has been the manager that he makes a legitimate turnaround in, in wins. And of with the Diamondbacks, he got them to a point of into the World Series, even though I, he wasn't there to, to receive all the accolades, but he built that program. And same thing in, in Baltimore. So uh, along the way, he gets things done. And just by experience and also being open-minded enough to, to try to incorporate the change and analytics because he's a, he's a old school homeboy of, uh, from, from Billy Martin vintage. If you ever talk to him, Billy Martin, I think realized early on that Buck was going to be quite a leader and, and potentially quite a manager because Billy Martin was the one that would 
bring Buck in to spring training to be with the, with the team uh, when he was as a young guy, when Buck was very young. Yeah, and that's when he started coaching from a young standpoint. And from a personal standpoint, I have been, I'm in South Jersey, but always was a Oriole fan. Grew up, I'm of the generation that grew up watching and loving Cal Ripken. And I've stayed loyal to the team, obviously, through the years. I got a big poster here in the office of the warehouse and Camden Yards and such. So, like you said, Buck's time in Baltimore was something special, especially early on. And I hope he truly does well in having dealt with him. But obviously, you had two different stints with the Yankees. But, and I don't want to give everything away. But when you first came on to work with them, I do want to bring up it was a new concept, per se, to have a strength and conditioning coach within professional baseball. So how long would you say it took to have that mindset and that difference in philosophy incorporated in the big leagues? Yeah, it was in it was 1984, actually. So that makes things even realistically, and for the fans listening, that would be even tougher to to us to realize about establishing a, a strength and conditioning program for baseball. And it was it was an ice breaking of uh, ordeal for me because I was the first full time strength and conditioning coach in Major League Baseball, and you must give Mister Steinbrenner credit for that to have to be a, a initiator, not an imitator. And he realized the importance of it, but it, it took probably two or three years before other teams really started accepting it also from, from their viewpoint of, of seeing me and seeing some of the actions that I was performing with the Yankees, whether it be readily seen on the field from initiating pre-batting practice and pre-game stretching which you see every team do now perform on the field as a, as a team, as a group. But I initiated that activity and that was, that was something else <laughs> trying to get, get, get these guys, Ron Guidry and Baylor and uh, Willie Randolph and Phil Necro, all these, all these old pros to realize, all right, we're, we're going to stretch as a team, as a group, before each practice in spring training. Okay, that's fine. You know, we can do that. But wait a minute. Once the season starts, you mean you you want us to do this out in the field in front of everybody? You know? I said, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And to to get that done, that was, it seems like something very simple, but it hadn't been done before. So to answer, it, it, took, it took two or three years for other teams to start to see things, Jonathan. But I, I think it just took me about one year. Because I, I got some things initiated and to have some support from Gene Monahan, the head athletic trainer, and the medical staff supported me. Well, on that front, and like you said, the athletes were like, really, Jeff? You know, kind of question. But was there somebody like a Mattingly or a Baylor or somebody like that from the player's perspective that really s- stood up and said, you know what? I like what Jeff's trying to present here, and maybe we should go more that direction. It was Baylor, Don Baylor, for sure. And the way he did that, there was many ways, but one example, 
And we just touched on that, Jonathan, was our, my, in 1984, again, we're venturing back to my first year with the team. We're opening the season in Royal Stadium out in Kansas City. And it's, uh, it, was a, to be, it was a day game, day game opener. And it was raining. So there's no batting practice. So nobody was, we weren't going to utilize the field at all. It's just kind of get ready, go out there and strap it on and get it going. But I told myself, all right, wait a second. We are going to stretch as a team somehow before this game. So I could get to keep traction with what I was wanting to get done throughout the year. So I, we're in the locker room and it's probably half hour, 35 minutes before the game. And I realized I've got to get these players up here in the, in the clubhouse and we're going to stretch and warm up. So I get up from my chair and I stand up and this is in the book. And I stand up in the middle of the clubhouse and I take a swallow. <laughs> I could hardly swallow. My mouth was so dry. And I said, all right, guys, everybody up. We're going to stretch. We're going to get warmed up. A couple of guys turned their head to me like, what are you, what are you nuts? What are, you know, we're getting ready to play a game. And I stood there for about five more seconds. Then I said it again, fellas, let's go. Everybody up, let's go. Up out of your chairs. It's time to stretch. We're going to get loose. We're going to do this every day. And again, they go like, get, get the hell out of here. And then finally, Don Baylor got up. And he really didn't, he didn't say a word. He just got up and just looked at me and followed along with what I was, what I was doing. Or just starting off with raising my hands up, stretching, reaching up above your head and arms straight just to stretch your lats and your back. And he started following through with me. And then everybody else somewhat fell in line. A couple of grumbles, but I don't care about grumbles don't bother me. So we got it done, though, as Baylor. Now, with that being said, and obviously I don't have a background, but I know a little bit enough, jack of all trades, master of none type deal. But how is it done for you in terms of setting up a program for a team, but also you have 25 different individuals in sense of, Obviously, I want to accomplish this with the team from a strength and conditioning point of view, but also everybody's body and diet and everything else is different because one thing wasn't going to work for Derek Jeter, say, but would work for Andy Pettit, if that makes sense. Yes. And it, that's a really good topic and question, Jonathan. And it has to do with figuring out, all right, what are the what is the main energy system used for this sport? And then also, once you figure that out, if it's, if it's an, uh, aerobic endurance is needed, or is it anaerobic, where anaerobic means it's a lot of short burst activity, which baseball is, there's not a lot of endurance, long distance running activity, where there's, in baseball, there's periodic breaks every uh, you know, you sprint for four or five seconds, if that, and then you can go another, you can go another 10 minutes without even running. So that's, that aspect has to be looked upon. And then also you mentioned the difference between, let's say, Derek Jeter, who's an infielder versus Andy Pettit, who is a pitcher. We mentioned earlier about playing every day, an infielder or position player, their program, their workload needs to be a little bit less than the a starting pitcher, Andy Pettit having five days in between his starts, we would be able to 
have all right, day one after his start would be a heavy leg day. Day two would be his bullpen day. He's going to throw bullpen. And then after his bullpen, he's going to do his upper body work that day, upper body training. And he would do the on-field activity first so that there'd be no qualms or no questions from the coaches or the athletic trainers if a pitcher would do their workout prior to their bullpen or to throwing. So let them do their on-field activity first, then do their strength and conditioning training. But those are just a couple examples of various uh, the differences between the individual programs for the players. And I'm thinking about this, and you might be a good guy to ask this. You and bet. Obvi- and obviously, the game has changed dramatically. But I was at the bar with my father and a few other old school sports fans because they are obviously of a different generation of mine, but we were talking about the game of baseball in particular, and you know, can have debates all day long, but we brought up guys like a Bob Gibson and goose Gossage and such earlier where guys would go out and do complete games and just, you know, they would lay it all on a line every time they started where this newer generation or even two generations, they have pitch counts and they have this and the analytics and okay, Mr. Rivera, you had 30 pitches say that's it. You're done. Where if you said that to Bob Gibson or Gossage or Carlton and any of those guys, they look at you like, guess what? I'm staying until my arm falls off. Yeah. Get the heck out of here. And that's playing it nicely to things. They would sit probably look at you and say, was that a change that you noticed over time from your perspective with the pitch counts and such, or was this just, where did that philosophy change? Do you think? I think it's probably since 2006 was my last year with, with the Yankees. I think it's probably about two, about 2001, 2002, where there, it became a, a, a focal point mainly of pitch count. And that's, when Mel Stoudemire uh, was, was pretty much initiated that of, of keeping track of some pitch counts or keeping some better, better charts, especially in spring training of their, of their workload, but right around that area era. But yeah, things have very much continued to spin off in different areas of like the spin rate, for instance, you know, talking about spin off the spin rates on a, on a fastball or breaking ball or a four seamer uh, exit velocity. It all comes, but it all comes down. I guess the more things change, the more they stay the same. That can you put the ball in play? Can do you, are you driving in runs? Are you getting on base? Are you stealing bases? Are you in, are you winning? And it comes down to individuals. Then it comes down to the, the, the team record, but are you getting people out? Are you putting, are you making the letting the, are you walking too many people? Like you're, you're not trusting your good stuff. You're afraid of the, some afraid of contact, as they say, a lot of pitchers, they wouldn't even want to, they're afraid of the, of a hitters hitting the ball. They're afraid of the bat, afraid of contact where they got to try to strike everybody out. Let your, let your teammates help you. Right on. 
And I have two more questions here I want to bring up. And obviously, I know they are in the book, Power and Pinstripes, My Years Training in New York Yankees. First one being the infamous story of Roger Clemens versus Piazza in the World Series. But also, I want to bring up, because I mentioned George Steinbrenner earlier, and his shenanigans, I'll say, are legendary. I heard your wife had a run-in with George over tickets. So could you possibly tell those stories? Yeah. And this was what really helped out our helped out families, especially with young children and the employees like myself. And they had a, the, the athletic trainers, the uh, video coordinators, the batting practice pitchers and so forth. The, um, the staff would be able to have, tickets for our family to be able to come into the game and at no cost. And so that would let uh, my wife and our, our kids come into the games and I'd be able to see them because it'd be late nights getting home. And so finally a, a, a edict comes down from up above from someone in the organization stating that there'd be no more family tickets available, that they're doing away with that, uh, assisting us for getting tickets. And that, that really floored us. It just made a lot of people upset. And really, one person you don't want to upset about that is my wife. <laughs> so she, she formed an, a letter that states that, listen, the only reason that Jeff and I are able to see each other or for, for him to see our children is, is the probably 85% of the home games that they would come into with a double stroller, with two young kids in a stroller, and another one in her arms and to take away the availability of coming into the game, it beats crazy. It's too much. So stating that she says, I'm, I'm requesting having our tickets brought back to us and not just ourselves, but the entire staff, because it's just, it's not, it's not right. So I carried, I, she gave it to me. I carried this with me for about two weeks and just waiting for the right occasion to give it to George. So here we are in Detroit, out on at the old Tiger Stadium, day game. I uh, no, it was a, it was a night game, and I was batting practice had just ended. I'm trotting off the field from the right field, and I look up in the stands, and two rows up behind the dugout is is George is sitting there with Arthur Richmond. Arthur Richmond was a longtime public relations director for the Mets, but also for the Yankees. Uh, media media relations so i go oh my gosh this is it this is my opportunity so i run into the to my locker in this in the in the locker room go into my satchel my attache and pull the envelope out and i go outside and i go george mr steinbrenner hey arthur i said give this to george and i handed it to him i just leaned up over the dugout and gave it to him and man i Jonathan, when I walked back into the clubhouse, <laughs> I thought, you know what? I'm fired. This is, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> this might because be because of his reputation, you know. <laughs> this might be my last game. And so here it is. Uh, the game starts. It's about third inning. And one of the clubhouse boys from the Rizzity team clubhouse comes out and says, Hey, Mangold, there's, some, there's a message for you in the, in the clubhouse. You better hurry up and get in here. You know, check this out, please. So I go in there and it's, it's that signed, it's that letter from George stating that uh, for my approval, 
that Jeff Mangled and his family and the entire staff will be, uh, you know, the ticket, the ticket situation will uh, resume as it was. Signed GMS, George M. Steinbrenner. I'm going, oh, wow. So, yeah, we won that case, but it was a, that was quite a deal. But before you get into the Clemens Piazza story, I'm curious to know, and obviously, like you said there, you were nervous about presenting the letter from your wife and all to George. But in that kind of sense, and like I said, George's stories are obviously legendary, the ones that are public. But did you feel that you could go to a George Steinbrenner or upper management if you had concerns about stuff? Yes, I, I did. Especially once I realized this, what you're somewhat alluding to here, Jonathan, is but especially with Mr. Steinbrenner, that I think he respected somebody that stood up for themselves. He didn't. That's why I think he liked to try to push people around and badmouth people and, and intimidate. But if you, not to be hard, hard, hard ass on you by doing it, but just to look him in the eye and, and, and just to hold up your end of the bargain that I'm not intimidated by you. This is what, this is what I need to do. But this is what I'm representing, representing, especially in this, in that case regarding my family and for him to see the courage that it took for myself and my wife to do that, that I, I believe he respects that. Uh, and then uh, the other question, what was that? What you I asked you about oh. the uh, Roger, Roger and Piazza in the 2000 world series. Yeah. That was, that was just the, the, the setting being there in the, in the, 2000 World Series and all the also this the build up previously between Piazza and Clemens they never got along and there's some uh, about supposedly Clemens beating him or hitting him before and and also Piazza really had a heck of a I think a on base percentage or Piazza hit Clemens pretty good and uh, so when that incident happened where Piazza broke has got his bat sawed off and it when that barrel of the bat would bounce it back up towards Roger. I think Roger's just so, he was just so amped up that he must've thought that, that it was the ball or then he realized it's the barrel of the bat. And that he, again, he's kind of caught in betwixt and he somewhat, he didn't fire it at Piazza, but he fired it near him. So it was kind of like things were just off. He thought it maybe was the ball. Then he realized it was the barrel of the bat. And then he's thinking, oh, heck, I'm going to throw this at Piazza or, or then realize I'd better not and just toss it over that direction. But very strange. But then I realized also that when that barrel of the bat just stuck, the shard just stuck into the ground and our bat boy runs out to start picking up the ends, the, the broken bats which is customary and then bringing them back into the dugout and to bring them, they would collect in this certain area in the dugout, right back where I usually stood quite a bit by the bat rack. And I realized this bat, it can't be thrown away, which the others, others are. And here it is just standing there by my, by my feet. And I realized I better, I'm great. I'm grabbing this. So the end of the end of the inning happens and uh, Eddie Layton is on the, on the organ playing the uh, interlude music between the innings after three outs is made. 
And I walk up, I grab it and I walk up to my duck, to my locker and put it underneath my, in the chest at the bottom of our locker where you could, where you could put things. And then later that night, I took it on home with me and that's where I had it for about 13 years in my office at home. Yeah. And then uh, maybe we'll just let the readers uh, find out from the book when they get the book of what I ended up doing with it after about 13 years. Right on. But before I let you go and close out here, I had heard and I noticed might put you in a spot, but maybe not. Mm-hmm. I had heard that something is very close to you near and dear to your heart. And that being a CJ foundation. So what is the CJ Foundation and what do they do? Yes. So the, see, exactly right, Jonathan. The, the CJ Foundation is for Carly Jane um, uh, Hollander, Carly Jane Hollander, and that it, it deals with sudden infant death of, of young babies, usually between the ages of uh, a month and a half or a month to about nine months. And my wife and Gail are survivors or continuously each day trying to survive. We lost a daughter to sudden infant death in 1991. And that with the the auctioning of the bat that I did, that there's a percentage of the uh, monies raised from that that was uh, given to CJ Foundation, and so that made me feel good to be able to to help out in research towards the uh, cruel and just the the fu- the, the finality of of uh, sudden infant death. So just trying to trying to help out in that area. Well, I appreciate you touching on a personal subject there, but mm-hmm. work if people want to look into possibly donate and stuff, where can they find info? Do you know that off the top of your head? You know that there it's um, I would inquire because this has changed numerous times. I would they would probably uh, sounds like an easy way up, but they're going to have to have to Google that to find out because there was a CJ Foundation for SIDS and I would I would go with that. CJ Foundation for SIDS, but I, there used to be a huge, big, uh, but still there's a big wing of the hospital in Hackensack, that Hackensack Hospital in Hackensack, New Jersey, uh, affiliated with the CJ Foundation that Don Imus funded. And it was through the, the Don Imus Radiothon that would be for the CJ Foundation. And, this, and just for listeners to know and for you to know, but like, as I said, Carly Jane Hollander, the CJ is Joe Hollander was the um, president of WFAN and this and CEO. And he that Carly Jane is, is a young daughter that that he lost to SIDS, that he and his uh, wife lost to SIDS. So, yeah. I will try to find links to put on all outlets of this episode, but Jeff Mangold's book is Power and Pinstripes, My Time Training the New York Yankees. Jeff, I appreciate the time telling your stories. There's more stories, some we told here, but they're more in-depth in the book and others, like I said. Go check it out at Triumph Books. 
Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all that fun stuff. You know the deal with uh, trying to get books, folks. Jeff, thank you so much. Great, Jonathan. Appreciate it. Great conversation. truly exciting and so glad that they are starting to make a positive impact. Little Bean Soapery is a woman-owned small business based in Northeast Pennsylvania. Little Bean Soapery does so much as all products are handcrafted and offer many different things for both men and women. Soaps, scrubs, body butters, bath bombs, solid cologne and much more. Little Bean Soapery also does things for special occasions such as birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day and special seasonal gift sets. But also, let's not forget large orders for party favors by request. The great things about all products is that they are crafted to be nourishing on the skin. If you wish to check them out, please feel free to visit littlebeansopery.com. Any questions, please feel free to also email littlebeansopery at gmail.com for custom inquiries and or ask anything else you wish. Tell them that Elena from Crazy Train Radio sends you. Hi, I'm Bill Ripkin, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio.